All right, good evening, everybody. Good evening, and uh, welcome to Hillcrest and week number nine of our 12-part survey of the famous Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I've offered this every single week, and I'll continue to do so. This sermon is addressed to the convinced. It is not evangelistic in nature. Therefore, each section of the sermon doesn't necessarily uh, impart the, the tenets of gospel evangelism. We are sinners who have a need to be reconciled to God, and Jesus made the way for that reconciliation to be possible, and so on. No, this is not an evangelistic sermon. It is offered to the convinced. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and started teaching. And so the audience is the disciples, not the crowds, but the disciples. In each phase of the sermon... We must remember that Jesus is teaching a religious adherence to God's law over and against that of the Pharisees. Now, I want to make sure we don't miss this. At every stage, Jesus is teaching a religious adherence to God's law over and against the teaching of the Pharisees. In chapter 5, this is repeated over and over again. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Uh, we can just go down the list in chapter 5, starting in verse you know, 21. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. Verse 22, but I say to you, everyone who is angry is guilty of murder. Skip down to verse 27. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks with lust on a woman has already committed adultery in his heart. Verse 31, whoever divorces his wife, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Verse 33, again, you've heard it said. Verse 34, but I say to you. Over and over and over again. Well, who was it that previously said X, Y, and Z? And it was the teachers. Right? It was the Pharisees. It was those who had been assigned and who had assumed the duty of being the pastors of the community of the people of Israel. You have heard it said, but I say. And so Jesus is teaching a distinction from what they have been told in the past. He is, if you will, discriminating against the teachers. He is calling their version false, misunderstood, misapplied, self-centered, self-promoting, prideful, temporal, and so on. A couple of examples. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. And this is kind of like my, my own personal um, paraphrase. You know, when you give to the needy, don't sound the trumpet like the Pharisees do. You see them do something, don't do it like them. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who make long-winded prayers to show off for people. And this is in, these are all in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, verse 5, and verse 16. When you fast, don't look all gaunt and disheveled like the hypocrite religious show-offs. 
I could give more examples, but I think you get the point. Jesus is offering a version of followership that looks and is very different from the version they've been taught. And they need to heed Jesus' counsel and exercise discernment to see through the charade of what they've been taught and how to do it his way instead. Now, I offer that by way of introduction because Jesus turns in verse 1 of chapter 7 and he begins with a, a phrase, judge not. So let's read these verses and recognize that Jesus is telling his disciples not to judge while at the same time telling them to judge. Don't judge, but also judge. So let's read and let's consider what he's saying. Verse 1, judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment that you pronounce you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you, seek, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? When there's a log in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take out the log from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. And then, if you will, the whole of this is summarized in verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And so this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you for your word and for the privilege of spending a few moments tonight carefully unpacking just a few bits from this famous Sermon on the Mount. Uh, give us minds to understand, uh, to think clearly, and then a will to apply that which your spirit compels and convicts in us. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. So up to now, up to chapter 7, verse 1, in the famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is telling them, judge the Pharisees, discern their hypocrisy, be critical of their religious What's the word I'm looking for? Gyrations. That works. Right? Be critical. Be discerning. Notice the error. Notice the hypocrisy. Notice the charade and see through it and instead do it the way that I'm describing. Judge. Discern. Discriminate. Truth from error. And then in Chapter 7, verse 1, judge not, that ye not be judged. So, I offer all that by way of introduction because we are going to be compelled to think carefully about what Jesus is saying, and then, of course, what he's not saying, but that has been thrown around in popular Christian culture. Jesus is constantly compelling in the Sermon on the Mount 
that his disciples judge and discriminate between false religion and true religion, between hypocritical religious theater and genuine worship, between eternal investment and temporal foolish investment, and of course, between wolves in sheep's clothing and a genuine pastor who selflessly loves Jesus and seeks to care for the flock of God that is among you, 1 Peter 5. And so in this section and in tonight's study, we have roughly 30 minutes to accomplish four things. Number one, reconcile, judge not with the other New Testament commands to judge. Number two, interpret and apply the teaching about the speck and the log. What's that all about? Grapple with the pigs and the dogs and the pearls metaphor. And then sum it all up because technically speaking, Verses 1 through 12 represent something of a unit. Verse 12 wraps everything up that comes before it, including the teaching from last week all about prayer. So we'll have to figure out how 12, how verse 12 sort of wraps all of this teaching up. So you'll have to just hang, and we'll have to get after it. We won't have time uh, tonight to necessarily exhaust each of these topics. We'll have to see them for what they are. I'm going to offer, if you will, devotional application of each of these portions. And then it will be our effort to understand how these pieces work together, how they essentially make a hamburger. You've got the beef and the patty, like the buns and the lettuce and the tomato, and they're different parts. Uh, but when you put them together, they are a unit. All right, so number one, judge not the misunderstanding and the meaning. The misunderstanding and the meaning. Let's begin with the misunderstanding. This would be the misunderstood version of that phrase, judge not that you not be judged. We are never to take up a posture of discerning truth from error. Judge not, meaning never take a posture of discerning truth from error. That is how misguided Christians apply this verse to the dogmatic Christian. And this is how um, skeptical unbelievers apply this phrase to Christians. They say to you, the Bible says, don't judge. Jesus said, judge not. And by telling me that a particular activity is sinful and leads to eternal condemnation is judgmental, your Bible says, don't judge. You see how that's kind of like thrown? Which is strange, of course, because just a few verses later, after Jesus said, judge not, he also said in verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So Jesus says, we're supposed to be discerning as to which so-called prophet or teacher is the real thing versus who is the phony who actually would do us harm if we didn't recognize them and act accordingly. So we're supposed to be discerning. We're actually supposed to judge, but we're not supposed to judge. You see? You see how this can create this you know, irreconcilable conflict? John 2, 
excuse me, 1 John 2, after warning the church about antichrists who have come, he says, I write to you these things about those who are trying to deceive you. I write to you these things about those who are trying to deceive you. Watch out for them. What's John doing in that moment? He is warning the church to treat deceivers differently than genuine believers. That's discrimination. That's discriminatory. Treat deceivers different than believers? Yes. Well, that sounds kind of judgmental. <laughs> Later on, John says, don't even receive them into your house or give them any greeting. Do not say, peace be to you. Shalom, brother. No. Do not wish God's peace upon this wolf. To do so, John says, is to take part in his wicked works. That sounds pretty judgmental, <laughs> right? Sounds pretty judgy. In fact, we're told over and over again in the Bible to test, to discriminate, to confront each other about sin, to use discernment, to discern the true from the false. For more on this, you can go to Galatians 1, 2 John, 1 Corinthians 5, and more. Right here in Matthew, later on in chapter 18, we're told how to confront one another about sin. When your brother sins against you, you're to confront him about it. Now, it would be a pretty convenient trump card if every time one Christian went to another Christian and said, you know what, uh, you, you hurt me, you sinned against me, and Matthew 18 says I should come to you directly, just one-on-one, -on -one, and just be reconciled to you. It'd be nice, it'd be awfully convenient if we could just pull this trump card, right, this card out of the back pocket and just go, no, 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 Jesus said, don't judge. How dare you judge me, <laughs> right? So that can't be what Jesus meant. Clearly that interpretation and application is wrong. It's inconsistent with a bevy of New Testament instruction. So that's the misunderstanding Never take up a posture of discerning truth from error. So then what's the meaning? The meaning, when Jesus says judge not, he says judge not the heart. Do not judge the heart. For God is the only judge who can and has the right to judge the heart. Which is to say to know the motive, and to determine the eternal destiny of a soul, to pronounce someone eternally damned. Jesus says, when we judge another like that, when we assume a posture of eternal condemnation, we are taking up the posture of God. And we're putting ourselves in his place. And that's blasphemous. I mean, we studied this in Romans some months ago. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. But instead, let us determine, decide never to stumble each other. And so, first of all, the meaning is Jesus is talking about being, uh, taking up a posture that would decide 
that would attempt or to assume and to presume to decide someone's eternal destiny. Secondly, the judgment that you pronounce will be turned around onto you. And this is less a statement, it's more of a question. Essentially, have you forgotten that you are not the final judge? By judging the hearts of others, you're forgetting that there is one who will judge and you are underneath his realm. Have you forgotten? So judge not uh, that you be not judged. Third, that the measure that you use it will be measured to you. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Here we see Jesus implying that his followers will use judgment measured out onto others. You will measure out judgment onto your brother and your sister. Simply the question is how, how much, to what degree. Right? You will have to discern that someone has wronged you, Matthew 18. You will have to determine that they've wronged you, and the, the, the measure to which you discern that and you act will be applied to you. You might say this, when discerning truth from error, be sure and do so by applying a standard you're willing to have applied to you. That's the message. That's good, you know, because, uh, so like uh, an example, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a teacher, and so I teach the Bible, and that means I listen to other people teach the Bible a lot. And, uh, and so the internet knows this about me, and so the internet is constantly trying to say, hey, you like this, you might like this heretic, you know? <laughs> and I'm often like, no, I don't, thank you very much, you know? But here's the point. Um, I will listen to someone teach from a pulpit like this one or some platform at what is obviously a church, I will give them like 30 seconds. And if in that 30 seconds I have decided that there is something amiss, something about the way that they are approaching the scriptures, something about the way that they're delivering the message, something about the way that they are interpreting and applying the text, you got 30 seconds and then I'm out. And I will determine and you will, like this guy, whoever this person is who came across my newsfeed because the internet said I wanted to see him, he, he's done. I've written him off in my book forever. You got 30 seconds. Now, do I want people <laughs> to listen to 30 seconds of me and determine for all of eternity whether or not I'm a total phony punk or if I'm a faithful follower of Christ? who is simply trying to do his best, who is also still wrapped in unredeemed flesh. Is that how, is that the measure that I want? Is that how I want it to be measured on to me? That's the point, right? Be sure and apply a standard you're willing to have applied to you. Now remember, friends, Jesus is talking to the community of believers. He's talking to us. So the standard you have for your pew mate 
the standard you have for your neighbor, the standard you're holding them to, is that the standard you want to have applied to you? The measure that you judge, that is the, the, the way that you choose to discern how many seconds of teaching you give them, you get the point. And so wise counsel would say, don't assume the worst. Because you wouldn't want the worst assumed of you. Don't have expectations of others you would collapse under if put on you. Be as patient with others as you would hope they are patient with you. Be as reasonable with others' humanity as you would hope they'll be reasonable with you and your humanity. The measure to which you judge, it will be measured back on you. It's good. It's good, right? Makes you think. Makes me slow down. All right, I'll give these heretics 45 seconds. And then you're dead to me. Now we know that this is the meaning behind these phrases. I, I, had, I had a church member ask me this just recently. Okay, how did you get from there to there to there? And it was like, oh, oof, hours of study and research and reading and history and commentary and right. I say to you, Jesus is talking about judging the heart and pronouncing judgment, meaning how we discern with one another. How is it that we know that's the context, that that's the, the meaning behind these phrases? Well, it's because of everything that's all around these few verses. See, it's judge not is, is so often misapplied because it's yanked out of its context and it's hurled like a spear. You put it back in its context, and what we're talking about is the community of God's people and how we're to treat one another. So you put it back in its context, and we get into this second part, the speck in the log. You cannot interpret judge not and the measure of judgment and the pronouncement of judgment. You cannot understand and appreciate that apart from verses 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 34 of chapter 6 and verse 12 of chapter 7. You got to put it back in. So let's look at the speck in the log because all these things work together like a hamburger. Verse 3, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own. <laughs> I, I just, I, I just love, <laughs> I love the imagery that goes on in my little cartoon brain when I read that. If you listen to everything Jesus is saying here, look in, go on into verse 5. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So is Jesus saying, mind your own business? Well, you read verses 3 and 4, and you might think so. Why do you worry about his speck? You got a log. How about you worry about your own log, and don't worry about my speck? Hey, hey you got some, 
hey, you got some sin, I want to help you, or I'm concerned, or you hurt me. Hey, worry about your own log, all right? Mind your own, Jesus said, mind your own business. No, because later on he just said, first, take the log out of your own eye, then you'll be able to help your brother. So Jesus isn't saying, mind your own business. Rather, if we're going to be of any benefit to one another, to do what Hebrews 10.24 compels us to do, which is to spur one another along. Spur. You know, like those things on the boots of cowboys that they jam into the horse when it's like, come on, let's go. Giddy up, horsey. It's a spur. It's a poke. It's a prod. And the, the writer of Hebrews says, you are to poke your brother in Christ and say, come on, toward good works well that sometimes is unpleasant and yet we're called upon to do it and so if we are going to be of any benefit to that extent we have to come to each other not as hypocrites but as pure loving penitent humble helpers anything else and we're just going to hurt each other and the church has a a wonderful history of doing that. Slamming someone with the logs in our eyes. Jesus says, you're called to spur each other on. And I want you to go confront when you've got conflict. We're compelled to discern between true and false and what's an error and what's not. But if you're just like living in a pile of sin as you do so, you're not helping anyone. We are called to discern sin in each other's lives. And as we do, we are called, we are compelled to call each other to repentance. Listen to this from Leviticus 19. You shall not hate your brother in your heart Okay, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You go, no problem. I'm not, I'm not into hate anyway. You know, I'm a child of the, you know, the 60s, the 70s, peace, love, Billy Joel, record players, you know. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but, okay, so this is the alternate to that, but in contrast to hating your brother, you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. In most translations, in most old translations, that word is rebuke. You shall rebuke your neighbor or reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. What's going on here? What's the prescription of Leviticus compelling the people of God to do? Well, when you observe unhealthy patterns of sin in your brother and you tolerate it, ignore it, look the other way, that's hateful. Don't, don't hate him like that. Reason frankly with him. That means bluntly and directly. We still got to come pure, loving, penitent, humble. But we're compelled to rebuke, like pull, spur 
reason frankly. This was written into Levitical law, which if you remember much, those of you who are in the Leviticus study, you remember something about Leviticus. It's, um, it's, it's, it's as a chiastic structure, which means that there are these, like, these portions that have teaching, right? So you have like verse 1 through 10, and verse you know, 5 is the center point, and then verses 6 and 4 kind of work together, and you know, 3 and seven kind of work together. You see what I'm saying? And they're, they're kind of creating this, this, this literary sort of picture where the center verse in the section is the point of it all. Well, the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Old Testament, they are themselves a five-book chiasm. Genesis and Deuteronomy kind of work together. Exodus and Numbers kind of work together, and Leviticus is in the middle. It's the prescription for the life of the people of God. How to live together, how to worship Him, how to honor Him, how to reflect Him accurately in a broken and fallen world. And so here you have this instruction in Leviticus, in the center of the Torah, the most sacred text to the Hebrew of the day. And in that scripture, something that they would have known well, confront each other about your sin, lest the sin infect the community, and you have armies invading like the Assyrian and the Babylonian invasions. Leviticus is the prescription to avoid this. And so it was a normal, common part of Hebrew life to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's the Sabbath day, bro. We're not fishing. We're resting. You're not going to sin against the Lord and sin against the Sabbath. Your sin is going to carry over onto me because we're part of the community. I can't let you do that. I got to reason frankly with you. I got to remind you of the scriptures. I got to tell you to trust the Lord for your provision. I know you need to work. I know you got kids at home, but we got to trust the Lord. We can't be profaning the Sabbath day and working. That's against the Levitical law. Remember the Babylonian captivity? Captivity. Remember the Assyrian invasion of northern Israel? Remember all that? We can't do that again, man. This is like, this was common knowledge to the Hebrew people. This was part of who they are and who they were and, and like part of their DNA. And so it's hateful to look the other way. So common was this that Jesus assumes that we are going to do this as members of his new kingdom. Of course you're going to do this. Just when you do, don't be hypocritical. Purify yourselves so that you can purify your brother. But the assumption is that you are going to be trying to purify your brother. So Jesus isn't saying, mind your own business. He's saying, when you do what is so common among the people of God that you are pushing one another towards purity, you've got to purify yourself first. Jesus did not say, ignore Leviticus, ignore sin in the community of God's people, never make a judgment as to what is true or false, good or evil, wise or unwise, judge not. No. The log and the speck assumes brotherly confrontation and simply prescribes the right way to do it. It's good. It's good. 
I'm saying it's good a lot tonight because I think this is all very good. I'd like to believe that you agree with me. But I had to force you to say that, so it doesn't count. From the speck in the log, we go to the pigs and the dogs. Number three, the pigs and the dogs. What's this about? It feels like this comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? Doesn't verse six feel like it came out of left field? So don't give the dogs what's holy. Don't throw your pearls before pigs. It's, uh, it's um, you know, two of the same. Jesus is mixing metaphors here. Uh, and if Jesus, the perfect teacher, mixes metaphors, then I'm allowed to do that occasionally on the pulpit, especially when I do it by accident. Don't give dogs what's holy. Dogs, of course, were considered unclean. They were not food. Don't give pearls, which is considered precious, to pigs. Pigs were, of course, an unclean animal. They were not kosher. Lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. What's going on with the pigs and the dogs? Well, the cross-reference to this is Proverbs 23, verse 9. And in some ways, the, the text of the manuscript implies that Jesus is actually paraphrasing an old wise saying. Proverbs 23, verse 9 says, Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your words. And over and over again, the Proverbs actually kind of, Im, kind of imply this. There's a measure to which you, you, you just, you, you, you do not continue on with a fool, someone who's not listening, not receptive. There's a measure to which the proverb says, at some point you got to go, all right, I'm out. When that point is, is a good question, but that's the idea behind the proverb. You keep offering the foolish man wisdom, he's just going to trample it. Now, the phrase, however, has been taken out of context. Again, do not give dogs what's holy. Do not put your pearls before swine. It's been taken out of context, discouraging evangelism to the unworthy. Now, I don't know if you've, if you've seen this or been exposed to this in, in Christian evangelical subculture, but I have. I've seen this misapplied, referring to people who, um, you know, don't have the right look, don't wear the right clothes, came from the wrong background. They are vehemently opposed to God. They're angry. They're frustrated. They don't understand. You're only supposed to evangelize people who are sweet and nice and receptive and look like you and talk like you. Now, of course, this is wrong. No one is unworthy of being offered the gospel. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us of our utterly broken and depraved state before God and his mercy revived our soul. I mean, Paul said, you were marching like Hitler's army to the beat of the drum of Satan. That's you, friend, before Jesus rescued you. So you certainly cannot say, yeah, that person is too, to be offered the gospel. You were marching in the army of Satan, bro. What are you talking about? You get the idea? That's the point behind this misapplication and the strength of something like Ephesians chapter 2 to help us be honest with ourselves about our spiritual condition apart from the miraculous work of God reviving our soul. 
No, what this is about um, is discernment. As you discern between what is true and what is false, you also have to use discernment as to reception. To help with this, Paul in Romans says this in chapter 16, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. So there's a judgment right there. Discern, discern the people. This is Romans 16, 17. Discern those people who are causing divisions and creating obstacles. They're just troublemakers. What does he say? Does he say evangelize them? Does he say reach out to them, Matthew 18? No, he says avoid them. Avoid them. That's strong language. Especially when you're talking about Paul is referring and speaking to the community of believers. Intermixed among you are those who are wearing the jersey of Jesus, but they are not part of the team. They are only in the building to cause problems. You need to discern who they are, watch out for them, and avoid them. That's brutally tough language. But it's not untrue. And as Jesus is giving these thorough instructions about what it looks like to be part of this new kingdom he's establishing, he says, don't judge each other. Be kind. Assume the best. The measure and the standard you put on others, would you want that put on you? Okay. And then at some point he says, however, there's a line. When that line is crossed, avoid them. That's where John, writing to the church, says, those people who are teaching falsehood, purposely trying to deceive and snatch away those weak-minded, immature baby Christians from the church, they're wolves, they're ravenous wolves. Don't welcome them into your house. Don't have anything to do with them. Slam the door in their face. I mean, Paul says it to the magician in Acts chapter 8. His name is Simon, Simon the, the magician. He says, he says, how dare you think that you could purchase the Holy Spirit for your own gain? And he pronounces eternal judgment on him. And he says, pray that God will forgive you of this. And he's gone. He's done with them. Pray to the Lord that he will forgive you because how dare you? I'm out. Simon, you have no part, you have no share in this work with us. Your heart is deceived and wrong. You pray, you go beg for God's mercy. But me, I'm out of here, bro. Me and you got nothing to say to each other. That is not nice. That is not nice language. There's a point within the Christian community where we have to have enough of a backbone to say, me and you, we got nothing in common. When that moment is and to whom you would say those words, heaven help us. Heaven help us. To not be eager to come to that conclusion. 
or harsh or hasty in doing so. Because I'll tell you this much, friend. I do not want to be on the wrong side of that pronouncement. I don't want to wrongly put that on someone who is just struggling or is emotionally confused or who's hurting or who's... But when the time comes to say, me and you got nothing in common, I want to have enough discernment and enough of a will to be obedient to the clear commands of Scripture. We all need that. But boy, to know when that moment is, to know when that line has been crossed, will require very, very real spiritual insight and discernment that we do not have apart from the Holy Spirit in us, enlightening our dead minds, overcoming our sinful and selfish Im, Im, like implications and ambitions. Heaven help us. Well, I think that's probably enough on that. The golden rule sort of brings it all together. You know the golden rule, number four of the, 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 the fourth piece, if you will, of the sandwich that makes it all kind of work together. Verse 12, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Ultimately, all of this, again, friends, is about how the people of God are to live with one another as members of this new kingdom. There's a new kingdom being established. This new kingdom Jesus has established on earth now with all of our weakness and humanness will one day be fully realized. This is not the, if you will, the final version. It's been established here and now. We're part of Jesus' eternal kingdom, but we're still human and frail and sinful. But one day, this kingdom will be fully realized. It will take its final form. When we are, are uh, uh, harpazo, I think it's caught up with him into the clouds, and we are made altogether new. We're no, it's not just being free from sin's power, and sin's penalty, we free from sin's presence. And the implication of, of the scriptures is that we won't even have the capacity to remember or be inclined to sin. That's going to be great. That's the final version of this kingdom Jesus has come to establish. In the meantime, in the meantime, this kingdom will have to function with you wretched sinners. <laughs> And that was God's design, not his backup plan. So how are we to be the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Jesus came to establish and died on the cross to do so? How are we to do it wrapped in this flesh that compels us to sin every waking moment and every hour? Here's the instructions right here, Matthew 5 through 7. <laughs> Here's how to do it. Whatever you would have to do, whatever you would have others do to you, you do that to them. Until the day we are redeemed and we no longer have the memory or the inclination to sin, call each other upward 
pull each other out of sinful and harmful habits that so easily ensnare us. But as you do that, as you spur one another along, and as you pull one another up and out, remember five things. Number one, you are not the arbiter of eternal destiny. And think about that for a moment and be glad that you're not. Can you imagine being charged with the responsibility of deciding justly the position of the heart of every living soul unto eternal peace or eternal torment? That's a heavy job. Be able to discern the true intent and position of their heart. I wouldn't want that job. Thanks, thankfully, there is one who has that job. It's the God of all creation who sits on the throne. That's his job. So as you spur and as you pull, remember, you're not the arbiter of eternal destiny. You're not the judge. You're an aid. Number two, remember only a sterile instrument can do surgery without infecting the patient. Right? Have you seen um, have you seen movies where they're portraying like some kind of a surgical procedure, some kind of a medical procedure happening in some kind of like third world country, and the instruments don't look you know pristine and sterile. They're not coming out of those perfectly wrapped, and they're slicing into someone and they're digging the bullets out, and you're going ooh germs, right? Along with like you know throwing up because of the blood and stuff, you know. No, but you get the point, right? You've seen those movies, and you're thinking, oh, man. I'm glad I live in America where we have, like, really high standards for going in and doing these surgical procedures, you know, sterile packaging and pristine, you know, scrubbed hands. And as an instrument, as an agent of help to your brother or to your sister, only a sterile instrument is helpful without hurting them. And so be holy. Be holy. Pursue holiness. Only then do you stand a chance of being of some benefit to your brother. Pursue holiness. Number three, when your brother confronts you about sin, be humble. Be receptive. Be as receptive as you'd wish him to be if the tables were turned. Be ready to receive correction. Number four, assume the best of each other. That is, of course, instead of assuming the worst. Assume the best. Don't assume the worst of their heart, of their motives. That's of no benefit to you, not to them. You certainly won't be able to do sterile surgery as you assume the worst and judge their hearts. Assume the best. And then number five, bear with one another's human frailty. Bear with one another's human frailty. And if you want to know if you're being too harsh, just ask yourself, if the roles were reversed, is this how I would want to be treated? Just as much as you are human and you struggle, 
your brother is human and he struggles. Right? So that's five good summary positions, if you will, to take as we attempt to be of some benefit to one another, as we exercise this duty of being the kingdom of God on earth before being you know, perfected in glory. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and for your kindness to us and how you are, um, you've not left us alone uh, to attempt to be your hands and feet or to be the kingdom of God. Uh, you have given to us your word and your instructions and these things are good. These things are life. Uh, let us embrace them, lean into them and appreciate them. Apply them uh, earnestly and humbly. Uh, for the good of this church family, for the good of your reputation around the world, and for the good of the gospel going forward, we pray all these things. Amen.